Welcome to Friendship Radio and to the grand march through life. It sure is good having you join me here on KGBC 1540 AM radio here in Galveston. My name is James Huey, facilitator of the Friendship Personal Retreat Program here in Galveston and on ships cruising seas throughout the world. Offering the gift of listening hospitality, I invite you to join me here on KGBC Friendship Radio for Southeast Texas as we explore topics to enrich the quality of your life, power for positive living, and friendship. I have as my special guest this evening, Mrs. Sharon Saney, who is the Director for Youth Ministry in the Houston-Galveston Diocese. And this is certainly, while we have a number of special guests here on Power for Positive Living, I want to encourage you that this individual is an exciting and very interesting human being. I first met her last August and have had the pleasure of sharing some time and talking. And since this program, Friendship Radio, is oriented toward personal growth, is oriented toward helping people learn more positive things as you write your life novel, I invited Sharon to come and be with us. Sharon, welcome. Thank you. It's good to have you here. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Well, it's always good when we're able to share. I first saw you when you were doing a program here at Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, and they were in the process of developing a youth ministry program. And I sent someone who was very energetic, dynamic, and positive thinking. And I remember being aware and just saying, this is an individual who is living a lot of what she's talking about. And I really, at that time, whenever this radio show went on the air about two and a half months ago, I said, you know, Sharon is one of the people that I want to have on here because, to me, you personify a lot of what we're trying to share when we talk to people about writing a life novel. You work with young people. And although primarily my work is around helping adults develop the ability to listen and to hear themselves, one of the things that I'm very much aware of is that a lot of the tapes and messages and images about who we are were developed as children. Since your work is with the youth, can you give us some impressions and awarenesses that you have developed as you interacted with youth? Okay, we learned so much about who we are from the people that we relate with in life, whether they're teachers or parents or just significant adults that were in our life or even our peers. As you said, much of your work is with adults, but you've got to go back and unpack those tapes that they learned when they were growing up. My job as a youth minister and what I encourage other adults to do is help young people when they're first making those tapes, when those <laughs> tapes are first being recorded, to learn how to say, I'm okay. God made me, and God made me with some good stuff. Now, how can I get in touch with that good stuff? Well, now, parents generally get first crack at young people before the church does, before teachers do, uh, before other adults, whether they're family members or whether they're in an organization like the church or the school. What kinds of things would you encourage these adults to focus on if they are wanting to develop self-esteem that's positive or self-confidence? First of all, in dealing with your children, each child is unique. 
and each child is gifted. And each child needs to hear that and experience that from the significant other or from that parent. Just in little comments in terms of that, what you did was good. Or just having young people or their children experience opportunities, will they succeed at something? And that's a task, whether it's cleaning, picking up my toys, keeping my area where I, I sleep clean, whether it's being able to take care of myself, but that I can do something and I can do it well. Also, that I'm a good person. I can remember experiences you know, going back to my early childhood where my father just came in and just said, just gave me a hug coming in from work and that, you know, you're my special child. No reason. But no, just, 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 just came in from work and I'm just sitting there and just, just gave me a hug. And it's like, you know, I am loved. I am lovable. I am good. And I carry that with me as an adult now. I can remember those hugs. I can remember my father coming in from work at night and picking us up because we go to sleep in the bed with my mom, you know, and mm-hmm. putting us in our bed yeah. and tucking us in, just that feeling of being loved. I can remember him taking time with us with homework as we grew older, you know, and just really affirming us in the sense that, you know, you're really doing a good job. Explain to me what's going on in school, taking that time up with us individually, you know, each one of them. There were nine children, but I (laughs) felt there were nine children, but I felt that I was an only child among nine because I knew I had that love and I knew that, that I was special in my parents' eyes. That sounds like a lot of effort that really has to be devoted to making sure each child does not feel lost in that sea of whether it's four or nine or whatever number. And I guess it could be so easy just to overlook that. And that's a simple thing. But I can see if I, as an adult, I can remember that. Mm -hmm. Then I think it's worth that effort. Parents were so concerned with, and I know I'm a parent now of a teenager, with making sure that there's enough money, making sure that my child has some material things, some things that I did not have, making sure that there's money for the college education. But I think in the long run, it's the time when I sit down around the dinner table and just share how was your day. I think that is going to carry more weight than whatever I can give to him materially, whatever I can do in terms of providing these material things for him in the future. But just to share myself with him and that my mom is really concerned with me. When you mention sitting around, I think one of the things I remember from my childhood is the old yellow formica kitchen table where a lot of dialogue took place. And yet, as I interact and listen to a lot of parents now, for example, they don't sit around a table to eat anymore. They eat on TV trays and look watch television, or they have the microwave. Some people eat at five, some at six, and some at nine. How do you encourage parents when they don't have that mealtime, which was really one of the key times when you and I, mm-hmm. I sense, were growing up? Mm-hmm. That was important, and that, that seems to be lost now. I would encourage families, if there is any way possible, whether it means adjusting schedules, whether it means missing a meeting at work, whether it means missing a football practice, if at all possible to build in that time. Times have changed. We don't have the hours that we have when you and I were growing up. But even if you could spend 15 or 20 minutes a day together around that table, and mealtime is a special time, and I think that parents should if at all possible, try to create life around that. 
if not, there still needs to be some special time that is family time because this is investment time. This is investing in the future of another person. When we talk about investments in terms of the stock market or, like I said, uh, putting away for that college fund, this is the greatest way that you can invest in that person's future. You sometimes feel that we as adults tend to value the material gifts that we give young people more than some of the more intangibles that you're talking about? Very much so. Very much so. And, you know, like I said, I, I'm guilty of it sometimes in my own life. And in working with young people, we do retreat work where we're away with the kids for a weekend. And usually by that second day, the young person will say, I just really don't know if my parents love me. And there are material things that are there that are very obvious. You know, they've got the $60 tennis shoes on. They've got the $50 jeans on. And, and parents are making all kind of sacrifices in terms of making sure that those monetary things are there. Yet this young child is feeling like they are just spiritually, emotionally in poverty. Well, what leads them to this? In other words, apparently the material things aren't there, so they must feel something else is missing. What do they tell you is missing? It's that relationship, and it's a part of giving of ourselves that we can't put a price on. It's that time to be there. That's why I said if we could even miss a meeting, miss something that's going to bring some money into the house for that time, to invest in the time of just being there for those children, just being there. They want a piece of us. They want us. I wonder sometimes if, as I listen to parents, I sometimes get the impression that parents don't have enough positive self-esteem in themselves to believe that their children really want something from them other than materials. Well, children give us a, a double message. You know, they tell you, I don't want my parents around. Oh, please don't show up for this. Or, you know, oh, I've got to sit around the dinner table. So they give us one message with their mouths. But in their heart, there is a totally different message. And as parents, we've got to use that mother wit and father wit to go beyond what they're verbalizing and say, in their heart, they really want us there. How do you help parents respond to the stay away from me message that a lot of, particularly adolescents, tend to give, and yet still have the energy to keep saying, let me give you something of value? First of all, the parents have to be confident in their own self-esteem and who they are as persons. It's hard to give it away unless you... Yes. You know, they need to take that time also to invest personally in themselves. And second of all, I just tell parents, they're going to have to be, when you're dealing with adolescents and teenagers, you're going to have to be like the brick wall where you can be kicked, <laughs> stomped, pushed, but I shall not be moved. I shall not. <laughs> I shall not be moved. Yeah. But that takes a lot of confidence in yourself. And a lot of effort, effort. and work. Yes, yes. But it's, it's not something you can it. do just on Saturdays, I guess. No, no. It, it's worth it. And I compare it a lot of times, you know, to your, your mothers out there, to the birthing process. You know, when you go through the labor pains and you say, oh, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make this. I don't know if I'm going to survive this. And when that child is put in your hand, you don't remember all of that pain. Well, adolescence is that same process. It's a birthing process because this is birthing into adulthood. Mm-hmm. And so it's that pain there. It's that time when you go, you know, Lord, give me the strength to survive this. But if you maintain, like I said, and stay there and with that attitude, I shall not be moved. I'm here for you, and I will be here for you. 
just like when that baby is put into your arms, when you see that mature adult who is living a positive life and who has what he or she needs to continue living that positive life, you say it was all worth it. Well, if you think about giving a positive, healthy aspect of yourself, what would be a tangible way to... I guess, demonstrate or to actively build this relationship with your child, assuming you were a parent. You mentioned your parent giving you a hug, and I assume that would be one tangible way. What would be some others that you could suggest? The hug is important, the whole thing of touch. I think we get away from touch. You know, I have a a son, and they always say that the boys, you don't want to touch them too much. But I think touch is very important. I sometimes get the idea that we're touch-deprived in our culture. Oh, we don't want to touch. That's what I said. We we say that, you know, Especially, sometimes it's okay to touch the the females, but we don't want to hug our sons. So I said, one is the touch that's there. Mm -hmm. Second of all, to be involved in young people's lives. It was, for me, it was being involved with what he was doing at school, encouraging him. He was not athletic. You know, most young men were into softball or, or the Little League. He was never an athletic person, yet he had musical abilities. So encouraging that, participating with him in that, that my mom really cares about me. And when he would win an award in the music, it was like, oh, you proud of me, aren't you? I said, I sure am. And then taking that time to be with him, aware of what he's feeling. So the times when he could not verbalize to me what he was feeling, that I had spent enough time with him that I could sense that, you know, we need to talk. And even when he would say no, you know, to stay with them and to keep that line of communication open. Well, sometimes a parent will share with me, how do I differentiate between being intrusive as versus being involved, like you're saying? I think it would, the parent would have to know what are their motives. And sometimes we can be intrusive, sometimes we can step over that barrier. But to fear not being involved, or to fear to be intrusive and use it as an excuse not to be involved, it's my concern as a parent and my duty as a parent that will allow me to ask the questions. And sometimes I will get a no answer. Sometimes I will not get an answer. But to stay with it and to know my child, to know when a nonverbal sign is not saying what is really going on with that child. Well, it sounds like you're saying maybe the difference between concern as versus control. Yeah, yeah. Which would be enough. And I think the parents would have to evaluate their motives. The motivation as to why you want to get involved controlling or whether you're really trying to share a life or are you trying to dominate it and control it and maybe even the concept of degrees Mm -hmm. that you either are or you're not involved but you can be involved to some moderation in between and then you have to know when to push it and when to pull back and that takes time in developing that relationship with that child too and hopefully not setting up an expectation that you're going to be a perfect parent oh oh. (laughs) the greatest compliment my son gave to me was the fact one day was this was for my birthday and we had had one of our family disagreements <laughs> the day before but then he, he shared with he said mom he says i have come to the realization that you are not perfect and it's okay amen <laughs> sounds wonderful and it's okay yeah. yes yeah a wonderful gift that he yeah. gave you i sense that he gave you something that a lot of us would like to receive My question is, how can we help 
we as adults help give that gift to young people, or it was given to you by a young person, how can do you see as you work with youth that we can give that gift to them so they don't get hit with what I call a curse of perfectionism? I think it's how we react with young people, say, in a given project that a young person is doing, that at, at times they will fail. At times they need failure because life is not always a success. But it's how we deal with that. If we use that opportunity, and maybe the word should not even be failure. Maybe the word should be that the outcomes were not as we expected them to be, say, for a particular project that a young person is involved in. And how we can let them use that as a learning experience and say, mm-hmm. it's okay. And help them feel good about participating in the process, even though the outcomes might have not been what we expected them to be. If everything is not as we anticipate it to be, and if we somehow devalue them as a person because we did not get the expected outcomes, then we almost set up that unless you do something perfectly, then you are not special. You are not good. And that in dealing with the young people, like I said, that it is okay. And that with everything we do, we learn something for it. You might make a mistake. The mistake has been made. We cannot go back and undo that mistake. What did we learn from it? And how will we grow from it? It seems that part of what you're mentioning this evening is something that means a very great deal to me, and that's the whole idea of defining. For example, you called it not labeling it a failure, but labeling it as something that has happened and being able to focus on, yes, the things that were successful. Is this what you're saying? Yes, yes. There was something that happened out of that, that I received growth from that. Mm -hmm. I am a better person from having gone through that. There will be times in life that things will not happen as I project them, as I would want them. But I learned something from that. Mm-hmm. Well, I sense that it's very important then to work in this whole process of differentiating between labels of like success on one hand or failure on the other hand. Is this what you're saying? Being able to find somewhere in the middle in between these two? That there's just not one or the other. Yeah, and just because the outcomes were not what we anticipated, it doesn't make it a failure. It's okay. It's okay. I'm still a good person. I'm still, and even if it was labeled a failure or a complete flop, I'm still okay. I gave it the best that I could give it. Well, and it would seem like if we could only differentiate the fact that what we put into it, but how do we choose to define what we did? Mm-hmm. Was the important thing the outcome, or was it the effort that was put into it? Going through the process. I hate to keep going back and referring to my son, but that's my reference as a parent. And I go back to the music lessons of that gift and that talent. He would learn a song, and he would want to play that song over and over and over again because he had mastered that, and he could be affirmed that I can play this well. But when it came to a new piece, he would get very frustrated because he would play a couple of measures and he would get stuck. And Vincent, you were just introduced to that piece of music, and it's going to take practice, and it's going to take time, and you've got to stay with it, and you're going to make some of the notes are going to sound sour. (laughs) But if you keep Mm -hmm. with it, eventually that piece will sound as good as the other piece. But it's okay that some of the notes are sour right now, and you've got to go through that. 
that way with other things in life. You know, once again, it's even whether you label it a sour note yeah. or whether you call it an individualistic flair to the piece. <laughs> yeah. And I find that as I work with young people, helping them decide how they want to define mm-hmm. something so that it doesn't become an either-or, black or white, good or bad, right or wrong. It certainly takes a lot more effort in working with young people. But I sense if they can start processing the information and put it into their own unique life novel, that it makes a difference. Mm-hmm. When we talked about the similarities and the differences, we're not all the same. Yeah. And young people, too, in defining themselves and defining whether they are all a success or a failure will compare themselves to other people because I am not Dr. Huey, because I cannot do the things Dr. Huey does does not make me any less. I have different gifts and different talents, and they will be expressed in different ways. And so part of what you're saying then is battling this so-called perfectionistic tendency is to recognize that Maybe I don't need to be comparing myself in every skill or talent or interest or ability, but recognize that we are different. Mm-hmm. And I would think that would be a difficult because I know if I am not careful, I can start comparing a part of me that you define as being important as versus me defining is important. And I find that in working with young people, many of them will define themselves. The athletic person, the cheerleader, and they will look at certain qualities and begin to compare themselves in that way and say, I'm either good or bad if I meet these qualifications. As an adult, you you realize that. Mm -hmm. As a young person... A lot of times they don't have those skills yet to recognize that. And the media sometimes is set up to sell them what is the perfect image, you know. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people who are making a lot of money out there projecting the image that is successful or the right image. You've got to wear this type of jeans, wear this type of shoes, use this type of toothpaste. And even You've some got young to have a certain can. you have to have a certain your your body has to be a certain shape. And if you're not this way, you're just missing it. And young people are buying into that. Well that's the thing that was really I was saying when I was so rude to interrupt you a few moments ago. But I mean they really believe that the shoes they wear or the leather jacket that they have on their shoulders is something that makes them something who they are. We have to spend time now in moving away from the material to show them and share with them what they have inside that makes them rich. Mm -hmm. Sharon, you do a lot of retreating with young people. First, what is the objective of establishing a retreat that a church may establish or set up for their young people? So the retreat is just an opportunity to move away from the general setting, the everyday setting that the young person is in, for a time of reflection. And like Some said, time of listening to themselves yes, and learning. And yes, and we can, you know, different retreats have different things, but it's to move away from the crowd as Jesus did, to have that chance to listen something very, very difficult to do these days. Yes. Well, taking the the retreats that you do for personal growth and development, what are the issues or what tends to be some of the more frequent concerns that you hear? 
with the junior high, there's a, the big thing of, of acceptance, of belonging, of being part of a group. They will do some outlandish things sometimes to be part of a group, but their whole identity in terms of who they are is wrapped up into that. And, you know, as we understand that and we help them understand that in terms of who they are and to provide those positive groups for them to belong to. When we deal more so with the, the older adolescents or say your juniors and seniors in high school, they began to wonder more and question more of who am I apart from the group, apart from my family, apart from the, the groups that I belong to in, in high school, whether it's the band, cheerleaders, but who will I become in life? It's a, just a normal process that the young people have to go through. The struggle is a normal process. Some of the rebellion is a normal process. Mm-hmm. And if we do not want them to struggle with it when they're 30 and 40 years old, then we allow them to struggle when they're the adolescent, as I said, and we walk along with them in their struggle. Well, Sharon, it certainly has been a treat having you here with me this Thursday evening. I just, I knew I was going to enjoy talking with you, and I certainly have. I've enjoyed talking with you. In fact, I probably have enjoyed it so much, I'd like to explore the possibility maybe of having you back again later this season. Well, folks, I want to thank you for joining me this evening here on KGBC AM 1540 Friendship Radio for Galveston County. I do hope that this program has provided a valuable resource as you write your life novel. And I hope you will join me again here on Friendship Radio for Southeast Texas on AM 1540 as we continue to explore topics each Thursday night to enrich the quality of your life. Power for Positive Living and Friendship. This is your friend and host, James Huey. Good night.